0: Well, this is, uh, this is a special night. This is pure joy for me. I have looked forward to this for a year and a half for a lot of reasons. Uh, I think last time I was held in the spring a year ago, John, is that correct? So it's been a year and a half, and John began talking about uh, having it again, and I am super encouraged. I love Montana. I love Bozeman. Flying into Bozeman makes you think, this might be heaven. It's just beautiful. It's incredible. Um, Now, Kansas is wonderful, but Kansas is so flat, I can see Bozeman from my house. It's uh, a pretty remarkable time. This is, I love the vision that John has for this conference, but here's what I also know. All of you that are here tonight are here at great expense. Money, time, commitment, priorities. And the fact that you would come this weekend to this conference is a statement about your heart. And I want to tell you on behalf of Scott and Brian, all of us who will be serving and shepherding, uh, this is humbling to be here with you. Thank you for sacrificing. And I'm just grateful to be able to interact with so many, some of you, um, uh, for the the second or third time. Uh, I do love to uh, hunt and bow hunt. It's cool to be in Montana where you can talk about bow hunting from the pulpit and people don't pass out. You know, (laughs) Um, Kansas isn't so bad, but in, in L.A., I couldn't say these kind of things. If, if anyone had, uh, you know, said he's an avid bow hunter, I mean, they think that chicken nuggets grow on trees down there. It's so bad. So uh, it's just good to be in God's country. Um, although, 21 degrees this morning when we got up, Scott. 21 degrees. And he'll tell you later, but he left uh, California just a week ago, and it was 103 that's a, quite a difference. I'm not going to do the math on that, but that's a, that's a lot. It's at least more than 50, right? Yeah. Okay, good. I <laughs> went to the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, so the math was not my, my suit. So. How many of you are from Montana State University? Woo! Okay, how many of you were here last night? Yeah. Okay, how, how clearly could my hint be? You know, I wear a large. <laughs> I like navy. <laughs> I have money I'm up. I could have paid you back. Is it? I mean, was it that difficult? I mean, do I have to beg? So, at some point in the next year, I want a Montana State navy blue hoodie with my name. No, just with Montana State. <laughs> MSU. I saw somebody with a navy blue hoodie. It, look, it just looks so. Anyone have one on tonight? Infidels. All of just <laughs> unbelievable. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Let me give you a little background before we turn to this passage. Last year, we were talking about advancing, and I talked a little bit about uh, difficulty, we talked through Job and trials. What I'm going to do tonight and tomorrow is to expand on that theme. I think all of that media is still up on the advanced website, isn't it, John? So you can go back and if you would, if you wanna to listen to these, these, these sermons in tandem, they're intended to go hand in glove. In fact, some of the things we're gonna talk about tonight and tomorrow are a repetition of what we did a year and a half ago. Now, let me tell you, I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I'm, I know I'm old. I know my hair is turning gray. I understand that I'm repeating myself. But can I just explain to you, I'm not repeating myself so much for you and the fact that maybe you didn't get it, but I'm repeating myself for me because this is so critical to understand in our advancing towards sanctification and the glory of God in our becoming more like his son. Romans chapter five, let me begin reading in the first five verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, Perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. One of the parts of language that makes us think or rather ignore thinking is the concept of an oxymoron. Two words that go together that don't seem to go together. The Great Depression. I think if you ask anyone who went through the Great Depression, they would say, wasn't so great. Jumbo. Are you calling me a name? (laughs) Clearly confused. I love that. Clearly confused. Somewhat addictive. Act naturally. Painfully beautiful. Beautifully painful. Deafening silence. Pretty ugly. (laughs) A definite maybe. Only choice. Alone together. Virtual reality. Random order. You've heard of some of these. Original copy. Disgustingly delicious, I got that off a menu. It's disgustingly delicious. I I ordered it. (laughs) Awfully good, small crowd, dark light. Light darkness, open secret, passive aggressive. I've always wondered, what does passive aggressive mean? Goodbye reception, goodbye reception, anyway. (laughs) Growing smaller, I like that one. My least favorite, unpopular celebrity. (laughs) True myth, unpopular celebrity, I read that. Noticeable absence, that's cool. This is one of my favorites, death benefits. (laughs) And then one that uh, if you're uh, a mom, you'll appreciate, non-working mother. What an oxymoron. (laughs) Tell a mother that she's a non-worker. Those are interesting. Those are fun. There's lists that we can go through and many more oxymorons, which is the idea of two words that go together that shouldn't go together, but express something true. I think the most notable theological oxymoron should not be a surprise though to a believer. However, this is an oxymoron if you don't study your Bible. It's an oxymoron if you don't really understand what it means to advance in the glory of God and in growth in Christ. Here's the oxymoron, ready? Joyful trial. Joyful trial. Yet that's exactly the emphasis that the Bible puts on difficulty, on persecution, on suffering, on trials. We see that accent in the passage tonight. Let me give you a little background. The first four chapters really are all saying one thing, that God justifies the ungodly because of his son. Now, let me give you a a quick description of that. For four chapters, he explains what this means. He says in chapter one that everyone is condemned in the Gentile world. They don't have the law. They don't have God. They don't have the revelation of truth that the Jews had the privilege of having. Not only that, it climaxes the end of chapter one does by saying, not only do people do bad things, think bad things, they actually give hearty approval to others who do the same. In other words, they pursue their sin. They love their sin and they love it when other people do sin because it makes them feel better about doing sin themselves. Now, in that time, there were some Jews who were hearing Paul speaking and going, ha, ha, yeah, but not us. So chapter two, he says, actually, hang on a second. You're not only as bad as them, you don't only do, think the things and do the things that they do. You're worse because you have the law of God and know better. By the end of chapter two, the Gentiles are all condemned by God. The Jews are now condemned by God. And he summarizes it in chapter three and said, all fall short of the glory of God everybody's in trouble. Then he says, there's none who does good and he spikes the ball in the end zone. Not even, how many? One. So by the middle of chapter three, you're, everyone in the world is waylaid before God because of our sin. We talked a little bit about this last night. When you read Romans, there's two words that, that you see that, that are the same word in the Greek language. Righteousness and justified. It's really interesting. And it's the same word translated differently. So what what we have to have to go to heaven, what we have to have to understand God rightly, what we have to have to be accepted by God is righteousness, perfection, to be justified, which means being just before God. God does something in in the gospel. This is what four chapters of Romans teaches and the fifth chapter, four and five, actually illustrate it through Abraham and through Adam, is that he, he makes sinners righteous, watch this, by declaring them that way. You say, how can he declare them that way? Because the two problems in our, in our need for salvation is we need righteousness, perfection to go to heaven, and we need to get rid of our sin. Jesus gives us his righteousness. The word uh, in the Greek and the English is he imputes it. He puts it to our account. And he takes away our sin by dying for us as our substitute instead of us and in our stead on the cross. So God, because of Jesus and our faith in him, declares us righteous. Now here's the catch. That's the most difficult concept for a Christian to accept. You know why? Because we all naturally want to do something to contribute to our own salvation. It's, I've been preaching through Romans for a couple of years at our church. It was one particular Sunday that I was preaching this and I was so overwhelmed that I, I, was, I was taken by emotion in the pulpit. I, couldn't, I could hardly finish the sermon because even though I'd studied it, even though I'd taught it, even though I'd learned it, even though I'd, I had um, noodled on it and meditated on it, I was hit so hard by the fact that it's so simple to be saved. You just believe that God did what has to be done for you to be converted. It's so wonderful. It's so easy and simple. So much so that Paul teaches this, and he understands by the end of chapter 5 that people would say, are you kidding? The more I sin, the more grace covers my sin. I might as well sin all the more so that I get more grace. He says, oh, no, no, may it never be. How can we who've died to sin still live in it? But my question is, do we ever get to the point where we get to Romans 5, we need Romans 6? I mean, do you understand the gospel so clearly that it's just all God? That your justification being made right before God is what theologians call monergistic, mono, single-sided? God does it all? That's what he does for four chapters, So that he comes to chapter five and he summarizes everything he said in one quick sentence. Therefore, having been justified by faith. That's the first four chapters in a little half sentence. What's the result? We have peace with God through Christ. I know what it's like not to have peace with God, to lay in my bed and hear a thunderstorm as a nine-year-old and be terrified that Jesus was coming back and I wasn't ready. I remember trembling, just sobbing, thinking I'm not right with God. When you have peace with God, man, you talk about the planets aligning spiritually. There is nothing like having peace from God and peace with God. If you don't know God tonight, one of the greatest things I can offer you in the gospel is peace. Peace, a cessation of anxiety in your soul that you're in trouble with God. Christ and his death provide peace with God and that gives us hope. Look at verse two. Through Christ, we have obtained our introduction by faith. We just believe it. And he imputes it to us into this grace in which we stand. It's the way we come in. It's the way we go through. And then he, find, he says something. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Exalting and hope is interesting. Now, I want you to I want to distinguish two words for you, okay? The word exalt and the word exalt. People often m- mess those up and confuse those in Scripture. Two entirely different concepts. Exalt means to lift up, to praise, to make much of something. Exalt is an entirely different thing. I want to embarrass myself if I can for a minute. I am I, I'm a Tennessee volunteer fan. I, I grew up as a Tennessee fan. Some of my favorite memories were with my father watching Tennessee, sometimes listening to the, the Vols play. It's tough being a Tennessee fan. It's really hard to be a Tennessee fan. It's, it's a trial to be a Tennessee fan. When Tennessee plays uh, um, uh, football and they're they score my wife. she see me jump up on the couch and yell and scream and stand on the coffee table and hoot and holler and act like I was seven. And she just says, I don't get it. You know what that's called? Exulting. I remember the first time my son was, was riding his bike, when Luke was riding his bike. And, you know, we'd, on, we were on the grass and on this little slight decline we'd, and he'd fall, we'd, and he'd fall, we'd, and he'd fall. We'd, and he'd fall. And then finally, he wobbles and he took off, and I lost my voice yelling with ec- ecstasy. I can't believe he's riding a bike! My boy! It's a bike rider! X Games! <laughs> That's exaltation. You've exalted in something before. It's not always, yeah! Sometimes it's, sometimes it's chocolate cake. And you eat it and you get the last bite and you get to pick up the last bite and you just stare at it and you say, I don't want it to be over. <laughs> it's so good. And you just savor and you love. It. That's exaltation. It's rejoicing in something. Well, he says we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We're so happy because God has saved us. Christians... Who can joyfully exult in the glory of God, though, are not exempt from anguish, from grief, from distress, from distrust, from discontentment, from heartache. All of these responses of the heart to pain and loss are still present in a Christian. Here in verse 3 it says not only this but we exalt also in our tribulations. That word for tribulation is the word thlipsis in the Greek. It means to be under pressure. Interestingly it was used of squeezing olives and extracting the oil out of them. You press them and squished and squashed them until the olive I've uh, seen this happen in Israel. They, they take these big big slats of, of really thick canvas and they lay olives on them. They put another on and then another on another on. And it's really heavy. It gets up to 8-9 feet high and it just slowly presses and out from the, the, the sides oozes this wonderful extra virgin, the first press, olive oil. That's thalipsis, pressure on something to extract something out of it. This brings us to face the most sobering reality and one of those most misunderstood concepts in the Christian faith namely, that becoming a Christian means that you're going to face trials. You know what the greatest myth in Christianity is? That if you become a Christian, life gets easier. Life gets wonderful. Everything's great. Difficulties, troubles diminish. They go away. I don't know how to tell you this, but oftentimes they get worse. And oftentimes they get worse not since you've become a Christian, but actually because you're a Christian. The pressure that is applied to a believer is not, in the strictest sense, physical sickness, loss, but rather a pressure that comes from the world and sin and Satan on our faith. But there's a clear relationship between those pressures and the hope of heaven. You know, I think it's a grace that we struggle here on this earth, it makes us want to go to heaven. If this world became so much like heaven that we wouldn't want to go there, why would we ever hope in the glory of God? How are you advancing in your Christian walk? Do you have a plan for advancing in your Christian faith? Do you understand all of the tools in God's toolbox to use on your soul to advance you to become like His Son? Well, we're going to look at some of that uh, tonight in this passage. We're going to look at it from the context of difficulties. If you want an outline, this is what it's going to be. Three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. Three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. The first distinctive is interesting. It's in verse 3. Growth, number one, growth in a counterintuitive response to our difficulties. The first distinctive of a Christian is growth in a counterintuitive response to our difficulties. It's counterintuitive, it doesn't make sense. Look at verse three, and not only this, he's saying not only do we exult, we, exult, we, we jump up and down, we hoot and holler, we're overwhelmed with excitement over the hope of glory. Not only this, you have your seatbelt on? Look at what Paul says. We hoot and holler, jump up and down. We exult in our tribulations. Is that not a little bit counterintuitive? You have a serious sickness, great! Someone you've loved has, has, has encountered a serious trial. They're, they're going to die. Wonderful! Is that what this is talking about? No. This exaltation in verse three is connected to the exaltation in verse two. Kalkaamai. It means to rejoice in, glory in, boast in, revel in, enjoy. We enjoy. Are you kidding? We enjoy our tribulations? Our distresses, our difficulties? What is this about? You said, did I pay for this conference you're thinking right now? How can Paul say we exult in sufferings, tribulations, and difficulties? Remember what James told the suffering believers in the diaspora? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. If I could change one word in the Bible, I think it would be that one. Consider it all joy, my brethren. Instead of when, don't you wish you said if? If you might. Consider all joy when you encounter various trials. The word there for trials and the word here for tribulations is plural. Trials and tribulations. Incredibly, Paul says that our response to having peace with God through Christ should elicit the same response for our tribulations. It's incredible. And make no mistake... This is counterintuitive. It's the opposite of the world's reflex to suffering. A Christian's right response to tribulation, suffering, and persecutions will get the attention of the world around us. Why? Because we have a settled joy in difficulty and sufferings. Advancing in Christ is not what you expect. Yes, it involves getting together and enjoying one another. Yes, it involves Bible study and prayer and meditation. Yes, it involves uh, going to church, enjoying fellowship. Yes, it involves singing and worship. That's all great. But that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin that Jesus uses to purchase your joy and happiness is difficulty. Are you settled? when difficulty comes, are you ready for difficulty? Do you expect difficulty? Don Carson says, all you have to do is live long enough and you will suffer. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for that phone call with bad news? Are you ready for that visit with bad news? Are you ready for the email with bad news? To a Christian, bad news is different than to an unbeliever. I'm going to find out in the next phrase. Growth in a counterintuitive response to difficulties. How can you rejoice? How can you be happy and exult and jump up and down in your tribulations and in your suffering? Number two, here's, here's where we get really serious with Paul. Number two, second Christian distinctive. Awareness of the invisible processes Behind our difficulties. Awareness of the invisible processes behind our difficulties. Verse three again, right in the middle. We rejoice in our tribulations knowing something. Knowing something. There is a volume, volumes, an entire curriculum in that one word, knowing we rejoice in our tribulations knowing. Edotes, perfect active participle from the word that means to know, Oada means to be in the state of knowing about something. James uses the same idea. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Paul tells us when difficulty comes, There's something you have to know. There's something you better know. There's something you are called to know. And there's something that will give you peace if you know it. What we know is what makes us respond to difficulty differently than unbelievers. Now before we get into the specifics of Paul's reasons in this text... I want us to take a theological field trip back to last year. How many of you were here last year? John, you might want to look around at that. That's, how many of you were not here last year? Okay, if you weren't, let me give you a little review of something that we talked about last, last year. Um, I preach to myself a lot. Um, I don't always listen, but I do preach to myself a lot. In, in, in the moment of trial, I probably think this at least half a dozen times a day. There's a little formula that I think is, is is comes right out of Scripture to ask myself, what do I feel, what do I think, what do I know? What do I feel, what do I think, what do I know? Something bad happens, what do I feel? I feel crummy, I feel awful, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, make me excited. That's what, I don't feel good. What do I think? Usually my feelings make me think badly. Well, what's gonna be bad is I, I become Eeyore in my theology. It's gonna rain today. It's gonna be bad. It's gonna get worse. And, and, and I get into a, a turmoil. You have to get to what do you know? What do you know? What do you believe? What's the theology that you really hold? So that, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? If you can get to what you know, that will now cause you To think better. See the correlation? If I know the truth about God, about sovereignty, about trials, about heaven, about hell, about my salvation, about my security in Christ. If I know these things, that will help me think better in a trial. Now I know what you think I'm going to say. And that will make my feelings change. It doesn't. Knowing what I'm supposed to know helps me think better, which doesn't always change my feelings, but it helps me understand, process, and control my feelings. remember when my mom died, I didn't feel great, but what I knew helped me think right about it. It didn't change my sorrow, but it helped me put my sorrow and my feelings in their place. And remember this, your feelings are liars. Your feelings will lie to you day and night will lie to you sexually. Well, if I don't enjoy this sexual temptation, then then I I won't be happy. That's a lie. Morally, uh, uh, well, if I don't cheat on this test and get an A, then I will be unhappy. That's a lie. Your feelings will lie to you. What you know shouldn't lie to you. Now watch this. What do I feel and what do I know? There's what's in between. What do I think? So your thinking is either going to be controlled by how you feel or what you know. Paul says we go into trials knowing, knowing. What do we know? Look at these. He, first of all, the tribulation brings about perseverance. He says, This is what you've got to know the simple fact that our tribulations, our sufferings, our difficulties bring an ability to endure sufferings that you cannot have otherwise. I, I love being in Montana. I can talk about hunting. Can I talk about a bow hunt? I went to Northern Idaho last last week and I was on a a week-long bow hunt uh, for elk and uh, herd elk, got close to elk. The elk won. My wife says, my husband is such a good hunter. He's just not a good getter. So (laughs) she's right. Kansas is, you ever been to Kansas? I mean, there's a reason that the Wizard of Oz is placed in Kansas. It's flat, it's windy, there's, I mean, you know how I trained for my elk hunt? At the high school stadium, up and down the stairs. Up, football teams out there practicing, they're going, what's that fool with the backpack doing? Is he a bomber? What's going on? You know, it was, I trained as hard as I could. Even though it helped, it was still pretty hard going, going up and down those hills. But I knew something from athletics, from sports, from exercise. The same thing all you guys know. I needed to get in shape for that hunt. Have you been to northern Idaho? Yeah, there's nothing flat in northern Idaho except my dreams. <laughs> I would go to bed at night thinking, oh, I like Kansas. Kansas. Tribulation brings about perseverance. It's a, it's a, God brings tribulations in our life to give us endurance. It, it's a workout. It gets us ready. And little trials give you the ability to endure greater trials. You say, well, why do I want to do that? Because greater trials are coming, so you might as well understand how to deal with it on the smaller level first. Hupomene, Monet, this, <laughs> you're not going to like this. Perseverance means the ability to stay where you are. Remain, hupo, under. Minnow to live, hoopo, under, to remain under. So tribulations bring about the ability to stay in tribulations. Isn't that encouraging? It gets better. First Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, he, this is a great promise, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Do you believe that? But with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. The next time you're tempted in the middle of a trial to sin, which means to distrust, to sin, to make moral decisions that don't honor God, the next time you do that, remember that on your way to that sin, God has given you hundreds of off-ramps to get off of that path. Are you looking for off-ramps? Are you looking for the fact that he's given you escape hatches to get off of that trajectory? He has. He has. John Flavel writes, affliction, or difficulty, is a pill which being wrapped in patience and quiet submission may be easily swallowed. He goes on, to be free from affliction would be no benefit to believers. Wow. To be free from affliction would be no benefit to believers. Who receives so many benefits by it? If afflictions be the way through which you must come to God, then never be discouraged at affliction, troubles, and affliction because they are of great use to us and to God. Here's what I know. Can I just be honest, bluntly honest with you? When I'm in the middle of a difficult circumstance, I find my prayer life increases. I find my Bible reading intensifies. I find my prayer with other people is is more rich. I find my, my thinking and my sobriety about life and eternity comes into clearer focus. When things are going great, I tend to slack off and be lazy. I don't think that's just with me. And I think that's something that God knows about us. So he likes to keep pressure on us because that tribulation brings about It exercises our faith muscle to remain under that while being faithful. What he's saying is that we should not be in such a hurry to get rid of those things that bring us closer to God. One of our greatest misunderstandings is the error of immediately thinking that all of the bad things that are in our life are bad things. They're not always bad things. Do you believe in a sovereign God? Do you believe that God has ever said, whoops, didn't see that coming? Elbows the angels. I-, I was looking at Afghanistan. Did you see what happened in Montana? In Bozeman? Has God ever said that? No. He goes on, though. You know this ability to stay underneath the trial, this hupomone, this... Staying in this endurance that you're getting, this faith muscle that's exercising. Watch the train. Next, he says, that perseverance, that that ability to stay there produces character. A quality that goes into your soul from passing a test. It's maturity. The best way to understand this is the maturity generated in someone who's endured through a test or a trial. God uses these trials and sufferings to make us more like Jesus. That's what James 1 tells us. If you you want to advance, just a little, little friend time here, if you want to advance, you better buckle up. If you want to grow in Christ, you better be ready to experience trials. This is what I've learned In over three decades of being a Christian, God gives us these opportunities and these tests. And if you don't pass the test, He wants you to learn the lesson so badly, He will repeat the test. Have you seen that? I just want to learn the first time. Trials are intended by God to change us for the better increase our character. And that character that's increased, look at what it says, that produces hope. Hope is rooted in the hope of glory, of heaven, not in the cessation of troubles on this earth. These trials and troubles pry our grip away from the planet and make us reach for heaven. Which brings us back to the thing we need most in the midst of a trial. Have you seen the circle here? Have you figured it out? Tribulation brings about Perseverance. Perseverance brings about character. Let's do this one. Tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about character. Character brings hope. What do you need most in a trial? Hope. So look what he says. And this hope doesn't disappoint. The very thing that happens when we're in a trial, God provides a solution for if we'll approach it the right way. it's all built on knowing it's all built on knowing you exalt in your tribulations knowing that God is doing 10,000 infinitely practical and glorifying things in your life in the midst of a trial he's at work do you know that do you really believe that when you feel like God has abandoned you most, do you understand that's probably the thing that God has put into your life to bring you to the knowledge that he really is there, he cares, and he's working? I think we Christians spend a lot of time trying to get out of what God has put us into to make us more like his son. Think about that. We spend so much time trying to get out of something that God is saying, I sent that for your good and benefit. How does this work, though? How does this work? Well, let's go back. Three distinctives of a Christian in difficult circumstances. We have growth in a counterintuitive response to difficulties. We don't respond like other people who do who don't know Christ. We have awareness of the invisible processes behind our difficulties. And number three... This is a distinctive we have. Comfort from the divine supply for our difficulties. Comfort for our, from the divine supply for our difficulties. Look at the middle of verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, God sent an angel To comfort him, when you and I are in trials, he doesn't send an angel. He comes himself. Paul introduces the love of God. He's going to expand that in verses six to eleven. A Christian then should not. Are you ready? Do you have your seatbelt on again? A Christian should not so much seek. To get out of a tribulation, to get out of a difficulty, but rather we should seek to respond to it in the right way because of what we know. I shared this with uh, some of the in one of our sessions last year. I think it was with some of the leaders, Puritan preacher Horatius Behunter, he isolates the real issue. This is hard, ready? This is hard. He says, man's dislike at God's sovereignty. Now stop right there. We're, We're admitting that God is sovereignly putting things in our life to make us more like his son that are difficult. He's sovereign over that. He does that on purpose. He doesn't say whoops. Bonner says, man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. He adds, we're not always comfortable with the idea of being holy or entirely at the disposal of God. Are you suspicious of God's heart? The truth is, you are. I, I am. I remember when my my third son had a, Staph infection on his umbilicus. About ten days after he came home, the umbilical cord, the site there, the umbilicus, he got infected with staph infection. We don't know where he got it. Somewhere from an instrument in the hospital. It was about to go systemic. We thought he was going to die. It was y, this was Y2K? I remember that. Well, it was the we we spent Christmas and Y2K um, year 2000 with in the uh, NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. With Mark, he had IVs in his head, in his hands, in his feet. They were feeding him through his stomach. And the doctor said, this is not good. This, this bacteria has become systemic in his whole body, and we don't know if this, if this antibiotic can catch up and fight it off, if his blood will even respond. So he sat there for 10 days in the hospital. We couldn't even touch him. We we had to gown up and and stick our hands through through this thing, and he was in this isolated chamber to even hold him. And I remember it it was Christmas Eve night, and I remember telling God, God, don't you know that I'm on your side? I'm a pastor. I'm we're on the same team. And I said, why is this happening? I had to get to the point of being so beaten up by this trial and the thought of losing my little baby that I got to the point where I admitted the question that was on my heart and I asked verbally in prayer, I said, why, why? You know what was happening in that moment? I wasn't living in Romans 5. I wasn't knowing that God was doing invisible things in Mark, in Kim, in me, with the NICU nurses, with the doctors, with our friends and family. He was doing thousands of things and I in a moment of weakness was suspicious that he didn't know and he didn't care he did know he did care and all of that was to make me see how I am not like Jesus I wouldn't have seen my distrust of God's character without that trial My suspicion of God's heart wouldn't have come to the surface without that trial. So what does it mean to exult in a trial like that? It means you have the settled confidence that God is at work in making you advance through your difficulties. Paul goes straight to the last question in our passage, which should be the destination of our hearts. We're given a peek above the clouds to understand what God is doing in our sufferings. It's not the last time he's going to deal with this. You know what he does in Romans eight twenty eight, right? Pastor Brian has a great book on that, that God is doing a lot of things. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, but not for everybody, but for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God causes, you ever really read Romans eight twenty eight? It's an intense verse. God causes all things to work together for our good. I looked up in the Greek. "You know what all things means? All things. everything. Now that's the, that's the profound. How about the mundane? Look, I got an issue. I'm gonna, I, you can pray for me. I have an issue with traffic. I don't do well in traffic. It's probably why God moved me from L.A., Scott. I just don't do well in traffic. I get frustrated. I get My wife, she's so godly. She's so frustrating sometimes in her godliness because she has this thing. If we're supposed to be somewhere at 8.30 and it's 8.15 and I know we're going to be 15 minutes late, I start getting frustrated and worrying. I can't believe this is traffic. And she goes, I I don't know why you're worrying and being anxious for for 30 minutes. I'm not going to start being anxious until 8.30 because they don't think we're late yet. Only you do. I'm like, what are you, woman? What are you? This is... (laughs) And she'll say during those times, honey, how's your trust in God's sovereignty going? Just fine, sweetheart, just fine. Think of the sufferings and difficult difficulties. Two men stand out to me, and we won't take the time to do this. In Genesis 22, remember when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac? God was orchestrating all that behind the scenes. We knew that the narrator, Moses tells us what was going on in heaven, what God was doing, testing Abraham's faith. Abraham didn't know that. When Job is afflicted, he loses his family. He loses his sons and daughters all in a birthday party when a tornado comes and and destroys their, their house. We know that Satan had gone to God. We know all that. Job didn't know all that what Paul is saying in essence is man, Abraham was feeling for the light switch in the dark and did pretty well. Job was feeling for the light switch in the dark and did pretty well. You and I know where the light switch is. The light is on. Christ has shone in your hearts. We have the truth of the knowledge of the gospel. We know how the story ends. We know that there's nothing that has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. We have all this knowledge, and yet we still fret. God is doing things and allowing things to come into our life to make us like his son. Are we fighting those things? I used to wrestle... High school and college. At one point, I was um, uh, doing a counter for a single leg takedown that a guy was doing. We went out of bounds. We went off the mat, and I fell down on my elbow and dislocated it. Fini- I didn't know I dislocated it. I finished the match. I won, but finished the match. <laughs> that was pure pride, but I had to say that. Um, uh, afterwards uh, the trainer was there and uh, I just said, man, I, I'm having trouble moving my elbow any further than this. He feels it. He says, well, you've dislocated it. So uh, let me take care of that. And he says, I want you to hold on to this pole and, I'm gonna, and he's going to yank the thing and put it back in. Now I'm a pretty tough guy sometimes. <laughs> so he tried to yank on it and it didn't work and it's killing me. So I said, well, we need a... a, a a, a better fulcrum so there was a you, this is more detailed than you want there was a ping pong table that was, that was uh, not out it was up does that make sense and we put it wedged it and I got on one side so it was here and he got on the other and he went bam and it killed me I felt it in my toes I wanted to hit him it was awful it was excruciating and then it fell really that tension was gone. It was just out enough and it was killing me. Why did I do that? Why why did I let him do that? Because I knew that he was doing something that would hurt that was gonna help me. Do you think God is doing anything that's gonna hurt that's not gonna help you? What do you know? The hardest part of dealing with trials is to believe that God is behind them. Do you believe that God's behind them? If you don't, it doesn't matter. Because He still is. Most important word in your vocabulary as a Christian is this word knowing. Knowing. We exalt in our tribulations knowing. James says, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces hupomone, to, to, uh, the perseverance, to remain under a trial. Here's the good news. This conference is about advancing. I'm here to tell you the bad news that leads to good news. Here's what you would perceive as bad news, which is not bad news. God is going to give you trials, distresses, and tribulations to expose parts of your life that are not like his son so that you will address those parts, be more like his son, have greater satisfaction, be a greater tool and effectiveness for him, and you'll enjoy life better. Are you fighting him? Nowhere tonight have I said you have to necessarily like what's going on. You like the results of what's happening. I was talking to my wife recently. We had a really interesting talk. Um, we talked about that day. So I said, What's that day? One of us is going to die before the other. It's either going to happen suddenly car crash, heart attack, instantly or this is that day we were talking about. What's going to happen? How can we talk about, how can we pray about that day when one of us gets a terminal illness? How can we know how to respond to that then, now? You say, why'd you talk about that? If the greatest threat in this life is death, if we have confidence in that, don't, doesn't everything else kind of line up Okay. <laughs> I love the, the title of that book on God's sovereignty. It's a high school book. If God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? It's really, actually a really profound theological question. Listen, folks, students, let me just say one, as clearly as possible, okay? Everything is theological. Every decision you make is a theological decision. Every action you partake is a theological action Every word you speak is a response to the theology that you believe or know or disregard. You are called by God to be attractive to the world, is one way you say it. You're called by God to be accurate theologians, not just to leave that to pastors and preachers and teachers. You are a theologian. How good a theologian are you? How do you define that? We rejoice in our tribulations. What's the word? Knowing. What do you know? What do you fill in your mind with? You know why you have a, have your quiet time? You know why you have your bi- Bible reading? You know why you should do that? It's so that you know what you need to know so that when difficulty comes, you can, what do I feel, what do I think? What do I know? And you can think rightly and control your feelings and the world will look at you and say, oh my, that is different than we expected. You want to advance? You want to grow? You want to be sanctified? Here's what I know. Here's what I've known and discovered from God's Word God is going to bring difficulty to shave parts of your fleshly lusts and desires away so you'll be more like Jesus. And it's good. He will never call you to any amount of difficulty and suffering that he will not also supply the grace needed to endure it. This is big boy and big girl theology, guys. This is not third grade flannel graph. If you're going to grow, it's going to be through difficulty. It's going to be through difficulty. And the reality is, I think any of us really understand that who've been a Christian very long. I love this little perspective by... Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven. He says, for Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. That's profound. For a Christian, this present life is the closest we will ever come to hell, our sufferings and our difficulties. For unbelievers, this life is the closest they will ever come to heaven. End quote. God uses the troubles of our lives, the culminating and inevitable uh, in, unavoidable reality of our death to lock us into a vision of him that's satisfying. I love what Morris Roberts says. He says, the degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends on his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. I love that. Books don't change your life, sentences do. You just gotta read the book to find the sentence, and it's not the same sentence for everybody. That was a sentence that changed my life. The Christian's peace of mind depends on his ability to interpose the thought of God, what we know, in between himself and his difficulty usually we have our difficulty and God's somewhere out there and we're focused on it. Do you, do you believe in omniscience, that God's omniscience, do you believe he's omnipresent? Do you really? Do you think in the middle of your darkest hour and circumstances, your most painful laments and difficulties, that he's turning a blind eye and he doesn't know? Do you, well, where is our theology? It's all in that word knowing. It's all in that word knowing. We rejoice, we exult in our tribulation knowing that God's doing something. Advancement is all about knowing what God's doing because He's doing stuff. And when difficulty comes, we can thank Him because He cares enough to conform us into the image of His Son through those difficulties. Let me say it again. The hardest part of dealing with trials is to believe that God is behind them. Once you do, it changes everything. Would you bow your heads for a moment? And I'm going to ask you to think just for a brief moment. This is some heavy stuff. I don't know what any of you are going through. My suspicion is there are people in here who are in the midst of severe trials, physical, emotional, some with family, some with friends. I also know that there are people in this room who life's going pretty well for. In both contexts, let me just ask you, what are you doing to feed what you know to help you think what you need to think so that you're not a victim of your feelings. Let me just beg you, if you don't have Jesus Christ at the center of your life, if you haven't experienced the the giving, the granting, the declaring of your life as righteous because of faith in his son, I wanna beg you, I wanna plead with you, please don't leave this room without having peace with God. You can be made right before him simply by believing that he's made you right by the death of his son. It's the most amazing truth in the universe. Father, we are in trials or headed for trials, looking back at trials. Teach us that we need to know what you're doing, that you're doing something. And that will make us advance. Open our eyes to see the mysterious wonder that you care for us so much that you help us to taste the bitterness of this world that we might long for the sweetness of heaven with you. Because of Christ, amen.